As we enter into the new year, what a perfect time to revisit how you're shaping and executing against your mission. We are speaking with an author of Mission Control, so stay tuned. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to episode 62 of Using the Whole Whale. We are speaking with the author of Mission Control, uh, Liana Downey, who has written a great book that's really practical, frankly, about how nonprofits and governments uh, can focus and achieve more and change the world. It's a very practical book, a step-by-step, as she calls it, on how to structure your organization uh, around a, a focusing goal uh, that really has you measuring outcomes and uh, basically all the stuff we talk about, uh, you know, the, with regard to impact. So she's got a great approach, and we'll be discussing some of the finer points on, on how you go about it, as well as some of the most common pitfalls that she sees that distract us from achieving that focused goal. All right, stay tuned. And I'm here with Liana Downey, uh, the CEO of Liana Downey and Associates, and the author of Mission Control: How Nonprofits and Governments Can Focus, Achieve More, and Change the World. Liana, how's it going? It's great, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of how that evolved into writing uh, writing this book? Absolutely. So, I started my career way back when in the nonprofit sector, working in various different stages of leadership and spending lots of time, like many nonprofit leaders do, doing arduous strategic planning processes that led to big, long documents that kind of sat on the shelf and not much else happened with them. And I also had the experience of working very hard and kind of checking off a series of milestones, but having that niggling feeling that I think impacts many leaders at the end of the year or the end of you know, some time frame and thinking, are we really having the impact that I would hope? And does the impact seem to tie up as neatly as the effort? Uh, You know, does it line up with the amount of effort that we're putting in? And I left the nonprofit sector and had a period where I spent time in the corporate world. I was working for the strategic management consulting firm McKinsey and Company that does primarily work with large corporations and learned a lot about strategic planning techniques there. And then ultimately, after almost a decade there, set up their nonprofit and government practice and ran that for about four years before going into practice uh, for myself with and my business now. We are based in New York, but we also um, work, still continue to do work in Australia, where you might be able to tell I'm from. <laughs> and, you know, really what I was trying to do was take what I'd learned through that process, having the opportunity of sitting in now hundreds of strategic planning processes and learning what really makes the difference in terms of driving impact. I learned things that I wished I had known as a nonprofit leader, but I also knew and know that work in the nonprofit sector is complex. 
and it is in many ways more difficult than work in the corporate sector and it takes something different to to take some of those planning techniques and apply them in a way that really drives impact. So that's what led me to the work uh, and I mean it's always been in my heart as it is for those of us in the sector I think we feel called to help solve some of the very complex social problems that um, society is grappling with. But uh, that's what led me to my work and also ultimately to writing Mission Control. Which is wonderful and a good segue into, you know, this is really, uh, it's a practical book, right? You um, obviously come from a lot of experience on for-profit, non-profit world, but you talked about it as a step-by-step process. And uh, a little spoiler alert, in here you literally say, you, you go into like, if you just take one thing away, it's really about this idea of uh, a focus, actually. Can you talk a little bit more about that, maybe? Like, you know, someone listening right now is like, but wait a minute, what if my, you know, what if our vision is to, like, end child poverty? Um, how do you reconcile that with this idea of focusing your efforts and making thoughtful choices? Absolutely. You know, and I think one of the things that has struck me both through my own experience and through sitting alongside so many CEOs and executive directors and boards as they've tried to take on really tough challenges, that most leaders are trying to do too much. They're trying to be everything to everyone. And yet, when I look back across all that experience and all the research that I've done and all the observation, the organizations that really succeed in changing the world are the organizations that actually make the choice to be something to someone. And despite the fact that the book is called Mission Control, which obviously is a nod to the fact that many missions are out of control and many organizations are suffering from mission creep, I'm really passionate about helping leaders set a short-term goal. And by short-term, I mean kind of two to three years. So to take your example for an organization that might be trying to tackle child poverty, I am a big fan of helping those that organization narrow their focus down so that they can bite off one challenge at a time and really throw all of their expertise, their efforts and energy behind the activities that are most likely to help them achieve that goal, which ultimately will be in service of the, the bigger vision. So it might be, for example, in their community that one of the things they've noticed is um, very successful at helping address the needs of children in poverty is providing high quality prenatal and care and early childhood support you know and I use that example because we know that that and there's a lot of evidence to show that that is one of the most critical uh, time periods in children's life and that a dollar invested in early childhood education is equivalent to $17 sort of saved over the life of that child in terms of other services. So an organization, for example, who is tackling child poverty might want to say, we are going to focus on providing high quality services over the next, uh, you know, for, for the first year of children's life in a very narrow confined community so we're going to serve this you know this group of people in our community and we're going to make sure that there is no mother in this community that goes without adequate prenatal care now that's a very different kind of goal to the loftier child poverty but the power in that 
is that it gives you, once you set a goal like that, it gives you a framework to make decisions about what grants you should and shouldn't pursue. It gives you a framework to make decisions about which programs you should put more staff and resources into. And it also helps you uh, do something that's very powerful, which is it helps you measure and track your impact. And when you can really measure and track your impact, you have a much better way of understanding which programs are working in service of that goal and which aren't. And so you're right, I've tried very hard and I'm very pleased that when you read the book, you thought it was practical because that's very much my intention. This book was written for the busy executive because there's no nonprofit leader who isn't busy in my experience. And it's designed to just help you through a process by which you can focus your efforts and energy on what I like to think of as kind of the sweet spot, which is at the intersection between what the world needs. And by that, I mean, there are gaps, you know, no one else is doing this work. What you are uniquely positioned either as a leader or as an organization, or hopefully as both to tackle. And then where there's evidence behind the approaches to show that those programs work. Because if you can get activities that fall in the intersection of those three things, that's when you start to see really world-changing impact. So I love this idea of balancing this, look, you can have a grand vision of how the world should be. You don't need to change that. It's the way you approach it with regard to setting that two to three year goal, which is fantastic. However, you then go on to say there are three big things that more often than not are going to come up, which is you already mentioned this idea of following the funding. Oh, but wait, mm -hmm. there's a million dollar grant that so-and-so is offering. The next thing you talk about is people chasing symptoms rather than solutions. And then finally, the idea of just simply saying no to to not unnecessary, non-focused uh, non type of work. Can you dig a little bit into some of these detriments? Because I think we can all sit in a workshop and a planning meeting and being like, obviously that's what we're doing, but really it comes down to fighting off those three areas. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think those are the three things that really lie behind uh, mission creep for most organizations you know so many organizations might start uh, with a fairly clear idea of what they're trying to do you know maybe they're trying to tackle um, find a cure for a specific disease and over time they find you know staffing is a bit tight they need a bit more funding and a grant comes their way or they're made aware of a grant that's in the disease area, but it's not about researching a cure, but it's about advocacy and awareness raising. And, you know, <laughs> and before they know it, organizations often become, you know, they're trying to find a cure. They're also an advocacy. They're also an education organization and so on and so forth. So I think many, especially many organizations that have been around for a while, when you look at their configuration, they're kind of a, an amalgamation of products that are sort of loosely grouped around an idea, but they're not, a coherent or strategic uh, design necessarily because they've grown organically over time. Um, and then the second issue which you, you absolutely um, highlighted is the issue of starting with a symptom and then moving deeper to a root cause. Now that, that act of moving towards a root cause is actually something I'm very passionate about and I'm 
a big fan of encouraging organizations to think like that. But the challenge is if you have, say, uh, an organization like the one around the corner from me that is a food bank, they were founded to address the issues of hunger in the community, which is a symptom of deeper issues around poverty and unemployment and you know a lot of other things. And as they've started to get to know that population better, they've started to see these other needs and they've decided themselves to try and step into that void and fill those needs. So providing um, periodic shelter services, uh, clothes and books and education and training programs. And all of those things are, are good and they're good because in a sense they are based on a really thoughtful examination of the issue and moving closer to addressing that root cause. But the problem is they haven't asked the question, are they the best person to be doing all of that work? Are they the right people to be addressing some of these issues? Because in some cases, um, many organizations have a real area of expertise, expertise or specialization. So a food bank, for example, a really well-run food bank like this one is, is really good at doing things like inventory management. Um, you know, running a food bank is a lot like a supermarket in some ways, which is very different to a job creation program. And so it might be that in their case, the best thing they could have done was partner with another agency that was very effective, or you at least need to make thoughtful choices about deciding to let some of those things go. And, and then you're right, as the third reason that I see that impacts people is really a kind of a cultural one. It's about the kind of people, and I put myself in this category, who are drawn to this work, who have trouble saying no. We have a hard time saying no. We feel like there's need in the community, and so our kind of knee-jerk reaction is to say yes. And one of the things that I want to be an evangelist for is encouraging leaders to understand the power and importance and appropriateness of saying no to some things. And so I think you're right in that it's sort of easy, it's always easier said than done. And it's easy to sit in a meeting and kind of conjure up some of these ideas. But I will just say something slightly different, which in my experience is that very few organizations actually work with such a clear goal that it enables them, when you do have that clarity of the goal as opposed to kind of the lofty, waffly mission that most of us are working with, when you have that goal and it is really understood and articulated by everyone across the organization, then that decision making and that prioritization become really easy. And I've, you know, I've worked through this process with many organizations and it's like a switch flips and suddenly it becomes very apparent which programs you shouldn't be doing. Suddenly it becomes very apparent which funding you shouldn't be pursuing because you framed it in very precise terms. So, you know, your goal has to be very clear. It has to measure an end state. So you need to know when you're gonna get there. And I also like it to be what I call spine tingling. You know, it should be something that really sets kind of the hairs standing up on the back of your neck and makes everyone in the organization feel excited. And the truth is most people don't push themselves to do that in strategic planning. Most of our experiences with strategic planning is very different. It's much more about wordsmithing a mission statement, coming up with some activities. It's not about this idea of forcing choice and focus. Yeah, and you brought up um, a lot of points. You know, I can 
uh, come back to you, but a lot of the conversations we have on this show are about, you know, how data and technology are framing things. And oftentimes it's this sort of impact of a glut of a metric, right? There's so many metrics now that we can track, so many different numbers that can be chased, impression numbers, awareness numbers, you know, like how many page visits came to this bizarre uh, bizarre piece. <laughs> how do you, um, especially in this digital environment, how do you then balance in what do we pay attention to? Um, what do you look for in terms of healthy KPIs, those key performing indicators that say that we are actually, you know, on pace to hit our target or time frame? Yeah. Well, it's such a good it's such a good question, and I think you're so right that organizations well, thank are. Thank you. I don't get enough praise. <laughs> you know what? See everybody. <laughs> no, it is. It's you know. I, I think you're spot on that there are so many things that people can measure that it becomes extremely distracting. Um, and you know, there are some very big organisations. There was a great article written by some folks at the Nature Conservancy. Obviously, a big, well-resourced, um, high-impact organisation that that kind of confesses to the mistakes that they made when they first started thinking about measurement, where they were trying to measure. I think it was almost a hundred different oh, metrics. You know, and that's that's surprisingly common. I've done that work with other big agencies, and their sort of starting point is like a three-page, you know, wide spreadsheet in microscopic font. And part of the power of setting a goal like this that is in itself measurable is it very quickly narrows you down. You know, so if, for example, you're a mental health agency, and instead of saying we're going to, you know, try to relieve the burden of mental health in our community, which is a, you know, not an uncommon kind of mission. If instead of that, you really said, we're going to halve the rate of suicides in a very defined geography, then very quickly, you know what you need to be measuring. Uh, now, you know, is it enough to say that if the, the, the rate of suicide goes to half, you get all the credit? No. So yes, you need to sort of understand the relationship between the work that you're doing, but you certainly need to be tracking the rates of suicides in that community. And and that is really, again, the power of that goal. Part of the kind of laundry list approach is because we don't know what we're trying to do. And, you know, the, the first conversation that I often have with EDs who are thinking about reaching out for help, I'll say, just tell me about your organization, you know, and, I, and they'll talk for a while. And then I'll say, tell me, who are your clients? And what are you trying to achieve for those clients? And it is remarkable the number of leaders who, you know, it's no kind of critique of the leaders. They're thoughtful, smart, intelligent people working on tough issues. But that conversation alone can take an hour. And if it does, I know that they, I know that they are asking the right question, which is we need help on focusing. Because when you get this right, your story boils down to something very simple, you know, and you can tell that story to an eight-year-old and they will understand what you're talking about. And you can talk, tell that story to a potential volunteer or funder or foundation, you know, so it could be an individual funder or a foundation in a way that's really clear and very compelling. Yeah. The uh, To go back also now to looking at the right metrics and, you know, you talk about suicide and mental health and, you know, I don't know if this happened for anybody listening, but, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, wait a minute. It's, you know, obviously it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that just because suicides have doesn't necessarily mean mental health in general or depression have changed or you've moved the needle there, uh, which then drives me back to this question of treating symptoms versus, you know, 
the actual solutions and the cause. And it's it's tough because I'm also you know pretty obsessed with this. And if you sort of pull the thread on a lot of major social ills, you end up with you know a handful of root causes, but it could also like change your organization. And to be more specific, let's say we were talking about helping the fact that the prison rate is out of control in our current country. Well, you can work with prisoners and that type of thing, but if you really do the math, you go back to access to pre-K and literacy. Those yeah. are the smartest things you can do. But 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 Liana. <laughs> we've got a prison organization. We've got we we, we go there. Yeah. We send care packages. That's where we work. So are you telling me that I have to now just like give up everything because of you know effective altruism and go back to the source? Do we all work on pre-K? You know, I mean, I think it's a again, it's a great question, and it, and it reflects the fact that you have spent a lot of time thinking about these issues because I, I grapple with the same questions myself. And you know, it's why all organizations need to be grounded in where they are. You know. We, we do need to be practical. And so it is why I'm talking about you need to operate at that intersection point. So it, yes, you should be grappling with issues where there aren't 40 other organizations already trying to address the same issues, which by the way, describes many organizations. You know, we don't often spend a lot of time really thinking about who else is doing this and how can we identify the empty space and work in the empty space. Um, but it is also about looking at what works and what is effective. So you're right, you know, one of the things, if you decided that suicides are the things that you really want to tackle, then we know, in fact, that the most effective levers to reduce suicides are about blocking the means. It's about reducing access. And so, you know, in the United Kingdom, when there was, uh, there was a period where gas stoves were a real problem, and they changed the technology around stoves and the suicide rate went down permanently, I believe. It certainly went down for a very long period of time. And that's typically what you see. You know, if there's a big jump site and the jump site is closed, the suicide rate goes down permanently because suicide is typically an impulsive act. So the easier it is, the more suicides you have. And that's true in states that have restricted gun access. Their suicide rates in the U.S. tend to go down. So, you know, which isn't a mental health issue. But if you're an organization where that is a piece that you've been really passionate about, and you know something about that, uh, you know, that question of suicides, then, you know, that's where you work at that intersection. So it, it always has to be somewhat tempered by kind of practicality. Does it make sense to have, to your example, you know, everybody who's working in kind of prison reform stop what they're doing and move to pre-K? Um, you know, over the long run, that might be very powerful. But in the short term, we have people who are in prison who need support or people who will be coming out of prison or we have, you know, we have people who are already at different ages and stages and need care. And so I always encourage organisations to think practically and to try and find that intersection between what they actually have skills in doing already and work, you know, shift so that their focus is where they can take the resources that they have and invest them so that they can get the most impact. Yeah, I mean, certainly not an easy question. Uh, no, no, you know, I mean, I like asking it anyway. This is a yeah. good dialogue. Yeah. Uh, um, all right, moving on to the next piece, you know, this idea of saying no. I think this is also big, definitely at least in the U.S., where we go through the the New Year's resolutions, and I'm talking to a lot of leaders, and you know, everyone's being like, no, it's this year. You know, obviously it's about focus. It's about saying no to more things. And, you know, I'm going to like dial in on what I can be great on. Uh, 
So while it is obviously something that conceptually we know it's a good idea, it's hard, Liana, because on the other side of it, how do I maintain an organization that is also innovative? I'm also taught to be like trying new things, right? In terms of our systems, our approaches and innovation. And like, that's all about testing and testing new things. So how do you balance so the, saying no and, and that also that other drive to, to be innovative and, and, and experiment? I think they're actually, if you're, if what you're saying no to is, if where you're focused is your goal, then innovation goes hand in hand with that. It actually becomes very, very easy to innovate because you innovate because you're trying to do better at achieving that specific goal. Where you want to say no is to programs that aren't effective or to taking on stuff that really has nothing to do with your goal. Um, so the question that organizations need to get in the habit of asking is, will doing this help us achieve that goal? And, and that's where it becomes more powerful and easier. It, doesn't, it shouldn't stem innovation. In fact, it should do the opposite. It should actually spur innovation because you're not narrowing in on the approach as being the only approach you'll ever use. So if, you know, for example, you're like one of our, our clients was working on tackling chronic homelessness, they used all kinds of different approaches to do that. Partnerships, collaborations, training, different ways of um, measuring impact. And they kept doing and iterating and tweaking until they really got to a point where they were having substantial impact. But they never lost sight of the goal. Are we going to, you know, by doing this, will we be more successful in housing somebody who's been homeless for more than 10 years? Like that was the unifying thing. And it actually drove innovation, not the other way around. That's really great. Um, Amy, you're mentioning some of these these cases um, in the book, you know, bringing up different case studies. You start off actually with, you know, smallpox and talking about how, you know, that monumental shift in the 60s to, to actually eliminate it was, was huge. Are there other case studies that you really like to point to out of the book that you want to just bring up now? Yeah, I mean, I touched I touched on the chronic homelessness one, and I think that's really powerful because it 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 can show you the shift that can happen when you you focus on a goal. So, for example, the the organisation that spearheaded that change is an organisation called Community Solutions, and they're a spin-off from another organisation called uh, Common Ground. And the executive director of that organization, uh, the woman who'd founded Common Ground, a woman called Roseanne Haggerty, had been working in homelessness in one way or another for almost 20 years. And their models in Common Ground still are really perceived to be world-changing. Um, and lots of countries emulated their work and their impact. Um, but she and one of her colleagues, Becky Canis, were really asking themselves some tough questions. How can we see so much homelessness still if we're doing such a good job? How come over 20 years we've housed 7,000 people? You know, that to many people would seem like a tremendous accomplishment. But when you compare that number, especially living in New York, as Roseanne was at the time, with the homelessness rates there, you know, it really feels like a drop in the ocean. And so they challenged themselves both started to go through some of the processes that the book outlines around getting the facts and talking to your clients. So they really honed in on a very specific area, in their case, Times Square, and just went and talked to every single homeless person within that um, area to understand at a very great level of 
detail those stories. And one of the patterns that they found was that there were many people there who'd been homeless for more than 10 years. And that was a real shift for them. And now it seems like, oh, obviously that's something you should do. But the truth is that in this sector, and this is something that's mirrored in many sectors, that um, idea of targeting the hardest to serve individuals is the inverse of what typically happens. So now to sound like a bit of a consultant, but a lot of organisations typically go for the quote unquote low hanging fruit. You know, the people who are newly homeless, who mm-hmm. seem easier to serve. And these guys said, look, what would happen if we really tried to throw a bunch of kind of long standing ideas on, on their head? Namely, that people who've been homeless for more than 10 years don't want to be housed and they felt that that was incorrect because they ask them (laughs) they ask people what do you want Um, and a bunch of other things around taking away some of the terms and conditions that had frequently been applied to people in those situations and and just really saying look we're going to try and house the hardest to serve and then setting this very aggressive goal of housing a hundred thousand chronically homeless people which just like with the eradication of smallpox seemed kind of like nutso um when they set it and then you know earlier last year they've exceeded it Uh, there will continue to be you know challenges there's you know all sorts of stuff. It's not like you look around New York when we're certainly not done. There's plenty of work that still needs to be done. But the shift and the and the change in thinking that that engendered and the collaboration that that engendered as well, that the rallying power of that goal meant that more than 260 organizations pulled together in a very different way to work together, to track information, to to try to remove much of the bureaucracy that had prevented people connecting with housing when there was in fact already housing stock. In some cases that wasn't the issue. So that's a long, a long story, but I wanted to delve into that one in a little bit more detail. There are many others in the category of diseases, but I, you know, I see this all the time when an organization just makes a choice to be something to someone, everything shifts and, and, and changes. I believe for the better. It really changes the way you look at your work and just by being clear about what your work is intended to achieve. Yeah, it's really great when you're able to systematically go from the vision down to the exact customer and customer experience in the same way that, you know, a company out there selling watches to humans does being like, all right, now let's see exactly what this looks like on the ground and make sure it moves forward. Alrighty, we are going to move into some quick rapid fire questions before we wrap up. So, first question uh, What is something that you think you personally should stop doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, many authors find is we write books about things that we need to address ourselves. So, <laughs> I, I personally struggle with the issue of focus. And uh, and so I should stop saying yes to every request that comes my way, probably. <laughs> Except for podcasts, which we Except appreciate. Except for podcasts Thank you like this, because this is the best kind of request to say yes to. <laughs> Next question. You have a magical wand that you can wave over the NGO industry in general. What is it that you change in the industry? Um, I would 
try and change the way the industry doesn't collaborate. I mean, there's been a move. We're doing more of it, but you know, we're pretty we're pretty crap at it. If I can say that on your podcast, I'm sorry. You can. But... You can. Do that. <laughs> you know, I I just think there is ego is rampant, and we're sort of too busy to do the research. I, I would really want to improve collaboration in the sector. Nice. If you were to jump in a hot tub time machine, which we have tons of in the U.S., uh, if you were to jump in a hot tub time machine and go back to earlier in your career as you're starting, let's say, your, your second tour of duty in a nonprofit, uh, what advice would you give? Oh, well, in a way, that's exactly what mission control is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it's sort of the advice to my younger self to say you don't have to be everything to everyone. You can make a choice. And, you know, I, I can tell you exactly now what I would have focused on. And I'm very confident about how that would have shifted the impact of that organization. And uh, and so this is my way of saying, here's, here's what it took me 20 years and hundreds of organizations, you know, working across to learn. I'm hoping that <laughs> we can start others a little bit uh, earlier up that learning curve. Quickly discuss a mistake that you made uh, from which you feel you've learned the most professionally from. You know, I think I was talking to somebody about this this morning. I think the mistake that I made earlier in my career was not trusting my instincts enough and not being vocal enough about my my instincts. Um, especially when I started at McKinsey, I'd come out of, I had been leading a nonprofit at a reasonably high level over a period of time, but I was like, I'm in a whole different world here. You know, I'm kind of new on the block and I was still relatively young. And I spent a lot of time sort of zipping my mouth when I felt like I might have had an idea about how something could be approached. And so I wish I had trusted my instincts more and yeah, been more vocal about them as well. What is sort of evoked from you uh, when I ask you the question of cannot uh, NGOs go out of business successfully? Yes, and they should, right? I mean, I think that we we have to recognize that the the purpose of a not a non and most nonprofits is not to grow infinitely and to attract a whole lot of money and spend a whole lot of money. It's to solve problems. So, the the most powerful thing that a nonprofit an NGO can do is to solve a problem, and you know that's it. Okay. Final question, Liana. Thank you so much for joining us. How do people find you, and how do people help you? So, oh, nice, good one, too. So people can find the book Mission Control on Amazon, Mission Control by Liana Downey. They can also find it on Barnes & Noble, and you probably can find it at your bookstore. Um, you can join the Mission Control community at www.missioncontrolbook.com, and you'll find a whole lot of resources there to help you go. And... You could help me, but I really do believe it's also helping other people by, if you like Mission Control, give it to a friend, you know, so either you can give them your copy or you can get them another copy. But one of the things that has really given me the biggest buzz over the last few months since the book came out is having people reach out to me and tell them that somebody gave them the book and it's totally changing the way they do their work and they're feeling really energized and excited about their impact. So I'd love to hear more of those stories. So gift it, you know, whether it's for just passing on your copy or passing on the message. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for joining us, Liana. Uh, best of luck as you approach the year. 
thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and thank you for all that you're doing to ask the tough questions and keep the sector focused. I like this book because of actually its focus on what we should be targeting inside of our organization and making sure you understand how important that is, right? Setting the direction of your organization isn't a, a one-time planning meeting. Uh, it is really desperately important uh, because it trickles down to your strategy. It trickles down to your metrics. If you're, you know, like me looking at the right KPIs, uh, you you have to pick your head up and say, wait a minute, have we targeted the right thing? Did we take the time to align against it? And I think a lot of other things fall into place once you have given the proper thought and planning behind that focused goal. Thought about, you know, is this a symptom or a solution to the problem I'm trying to solve? Uh, because, you know, this is something I'm trying to do this year. Uh, focus, frankly, on what makes the boat go faster. The idea that we're all rowing in the same direction. And if you see somebody sort of like dithering around in a circle or realizing that they're doing something like poking a hole in the boat, it's not going to help you get where you're going. And so when you're being asked to say no to things, it's a lot easier to say, actually, I'm sorry, this year is really going to be focused on providing this type of service in this type of way. And frankly, uh, we don't have time for that. Uh, is better than just saying no for no sake. And we are as much defined by what we actually choose not to do versus what we do, because guess what? The minutes and hours will tick by no matter what, and it depends on what you fill them up with. Uh, so I'll leave you with that thought, and I hope you do check out this book because it's uh, it's a good quick read that'll, that'll bring a little focus to what you're working on with some great uh, workshops and planning uh, pieces to it. You can find all of today's resources at wholewhale.com slash podcast and find episode number 62. Take care. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at wholewhale. And thanks for joining us. Music for the podcast, intro and outro and interlude music from the one, the only, Greg Thomas. I don't know, there may be other Greg Thomases out there, but he's the only one that I know, so therefore he is my one and only Greg Thomas. Great music for anything that you're doing, uh, be it for video or podcasting. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg.